the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is our producer, Clark Hilton engineering today's program. Thanks for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Today we're going to talk with Roger Kemp with Insight for Living. There's a need over there. We're going to tell you all about that. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. We're also going to talk with Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino. They are co-authors of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. It is a riveting book on the behind-the-scenes events that took place before and uh, during the Kavanaugh confirmation process. They put it in a broader historical context. They have had um, un. Paralleled access, I almost said unmerited, but that's not the right word. Unparalleled access access to individuals who are part of all of that. And they're coming up in the five o'clock hour as well. So looking forward to sharing that conversation with you later in today's program. First, some of the headlines. China signaled on Monday it is now seeking to calm... Uh, a rather a calm end to its ongoing trade war with the United States as Asian markets crumbled and China's currency plummeted to an 11-year low following the latest tariffs on $550 billion in Chinese goods announced last Friday by the Trump administration. News of the possible opening in negotiations came shortly after the president threatened to declare a national emergency that resulted in American businesses freezing their relationship with China. Trump's tariffs barrage of uh, on Friday was a response to China's imposing its own retaliatory tariffs on $75 billion in U.S. goods. At the Group of Seven Summit in France on Sunday, White House officials rejected suggestions that the president was wavering and insisted that his only regret was not implementing even more tariffs on China. And President Trump on Monday said the U.S. is not seeking regime change in Iran and told reporters at the G7 summit in France that he hopes to see a strong Iran. Trump's comments came after a a day of tense meetings with his European counterparts about how best to approach Iran and the recent tensions in the region. On Sunday, Iran's foreign minister, uh, Mohammad Zavad Zarif, uh, made a surprise visit at the summit at the behest of French President Emmanuel Macron. Uh, President Trump insisted that he knew about Zarif's uh, appearance but did not meet with him. Hong Kong police have confirmed an officer fired a warning shot at protesters as they surrounded them and said they arrested some 36 people during the latest round of pro-democracy demonstrations. A police news release on Monday said that one police officer fell to the ground as protesters threw um, hard objects at a small group of officers the previous night. The officers could be seen holding up their shields as protesters surged forward, swinging sticks and rods. The incident happened after an earlier clash with hundreds of protesters who occupied a main street following a peaceful protest march. Police used uh, tear gas, uh, tear gas rather, to clear the street, but some protesters remained in the neighborhood. Hardliners confronted police anew after largely holding back the previous weekend. The police deployed two water cannon trucks Sunday for the first time during the 11 weeks of protests 
uh, in that area. Bernie Sanders renewed his attacks on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell at a rally in the top Republicans' home state of Kentucky on Sunday afternoon, demanding that McConnell stop his cowardice and have the guts to immediately take up legislation aimed at reducing gun violence, strengthening election security, and raising the federal minimum wage. The blistering address in uh, Louisville came as uh, National Democrats hoping to retake not only the White House, but also the Senate in 2020, increasingly have set their sights on the 77-year-old McConnell. Meanwhile, Representative uh, Roel Khanna, a California Democrat and Sanders national campaign co-chair, uh, speaking on Sunday Morning Futures, said that he believed former Vice President Joe Biden regretted making a comment over the weekend about what would have happened had former President Barack Obama been assassinated while on the campaign trail in 2008. The comment stirred up controversy, but a Biden aide said the candidate has used the analogy before when speaking to younger generations who were not alive during the turbulent 60s. Biden asserted the assassination of King and Kennedy raised his political awareness and propelled him to run for office. I'm not sure the point he was making, but nonetheless, in another story, the Wild West came to Midtown on Sunday when at least three armed bandits, one of whom wore what witnesses described as a cowboy hat, bound workers in a massive jewelry store heist, according to police. The crooks coolly posed as customers at the Avion and Company in the heart of the Diamond District, browsing the bling before pulling handguns on the four workers in the shop. At the time of the high noon holdup, cops said, after restraining the workers with zip ties, the robbers raided the safe and uh, display cases, dumping nearly all of the sparklers, as they call them, into at least one duffel bag before uh, hightailing it out into surveillance camera lined West 47th Street, according to authorities. Well, Indianapolis Colts quarterback Andrew Luck, who announced his retirement on Saturday, is potentially walking away from a half billion dollars. Colts owner Jim uh, Irsay reportedly claimed Luck, 29, is giving up almost $500 million, according to NFL Network Mike uh, Garofalo. Colts owner uh, Jim Irsay notes Andrew Luck is giving up almost $400 million by walking away from the NFL with quarterback salaries already at $35 million per year. Luck uh, would have pushed $40 million uh, very soon. Uh, Garofalo wrote in a tweet over the weekend, another deal after that, uh, maybe over $50 million. Um, Luck raked in more than $97.1 million in on-field earnings during his seven-year career, according to a spot track. The Colt star had three years left on his $140 million six-year deal, which he signed in June of 2016. And according to the Washington Free Beacon, former Illinois Republican Congressman Joe Walsh announced his plans to uh, uh, primary President Donald Trump during a Sunday interview with George Stephanopoulos. Political commentator Eric Erickson fumes he is being pushed by a bunch of people who claim character really does matter. So they've settled for an opportunistic grifter and birther conspiracist. They might as well back Donald Trump instead of uh, many Trump humper. Uh, turned Trump dumper. What a spectacular admission of failure that Walsh is the best they can come up with and that they would settle for him suggests uh, they really aren't uh, that concerned with character, end quote. Sort of a scathing 
uh, response. The House Judiciary Committee will subpoena former White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter as part of its probe into President Trump's alleged attempts to obstruct Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. The White House has thus far blocked senior White House officials from complying with lawmakers' oversight requests, asserting that high-level officials enjoy absolute immunity from testifying before Congress. Well, that claim is now being challenged in the courts by Democrats seeking testimony from former White House counsel Don McGahn. And a Minnesota Christian couple in the videography business uh, was attacked by the Rainbow Mafia, though thankfully they were vindicated last week by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. National Review's David French provides background and explains why this was a powerful blow for free speech and religious freedom. We'll talk more about that later in the program. And North Korea fired two suspected short-range ballistic missiles into the sea on Saturday morning. South Korea's military says the launch is the seventh carried out since North Korea ended a 17-month hiatus on testing at the end of July. Japan's defense minister minister uh, confirmed the missiles had not landed in Japan territorial waters, but described them as a clear violation of U.N. resolutions. And on this day in history, 1910, Thomas Edison demonstrates for reporters an improved version of his um, kinetophone, a device for showing a movie with synchronized sound. And on this day in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guaranteeing American women the right to vote is certified in effect by Secretary of State Brainbridge Colby. And on this day in 1957, the Soviet Union announces it has successfully tested an intercontinental ballistic missile. And on this day in 1968, the Democratic National Convention opens in Chicago, the four-day event that results in the nomination of Hubert H. Humphrey for president is marked by a bloody police crackdown on anti-war protesters in the streets. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Roger Kemp. He is with Insight for Living. And we'll talk with Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino. They are the co-authors of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. Primarily the future of the confirmation process to the Supreme Court. So that's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, Stuart Varney, who is a business network commentator, has a message for Americans after the deluge of criticism of the president's Performance at the G7 meetings in France, he says, in my take, uh, no matter what you read and hear about the uh, uh, from the media, the G7, this one in particular was all about Donald Trump realigning the world, reshaping the world economy with America's interests first and foremost. Well, he says after President Trump's news conference at the conclusion of the summit on Monday, CNN's Jim Acosta said, I think perhaps one of the biggest headlines coming out of this press conference that we just witnessed here in France is that the president would not be pinned down on this question of climate change. Well, Varney said that analysis misses the point. Trade was the headline issue, a deal with Japan. We'll talk more about that momentarily. They will import a lot more of our agricultural products. Britain gets a major deal, uh, trade deal after Brexit, and there's dialogue with Germany on car tariffs as well, but the most important, China, stressed Varney. At the press conference on Monday, President Trump said China wants to make a deal, and I tell um, this to President Xi Jinping, who I really respect. I told him very strongly, I said, look, you're making $500 billion a year and stealing our intellectual property. We can't make a 50-50 deal if you're not better. I don't want to do business, end quote. Well, Varney believes that it's uh, time for America's European 
European allies to get on board with the president's agenda, saying Europeans are frankly scared of America. Their economies are sinking. Uh, they've entered the fantasy land of negative interest rates. Their money is pouring out, uh, pouring over here, and they just don't know what to do. My advice, jump on the Trump train and quit whining about Iran and climate change. Again, uh, Mr. Varney, his take on uh, the president's performance at G7, in contrast to most of what you'll read and hear. A deal is uh, all about uh, uh, all but sealed with Japan, we're being told. The president uh, confirmed it's a very big transaction, and we've agreed in principle while speaking beside President uh, uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in France after a meeting at the G7 summit. The president said the prime minister agreed to purchase some of U.S. farmers' corn, blaming China for the excess product of on farmers' hands. He expects the billion-dollar deal to be sealed by the time the U.N. General Assembly meets in mid-December, or rather mid-September. This is a tremendous deal for the United States, a tremendous deal for our farmers and agriculture, along with e-commerce, uh, the president went on to say. Abe called the deal a win-win, describing the talks through a translator as a series of intensive negotiations. We still have some remaining work that has to be done at the working level to finalize the wording and content of the deal, he went on to explain. The Japanese prime minister noted their country was experiencing an insect problem on certain agricultural products and that the private sector would be purchasing U.S. corn products to offset that issue. He said an emergency may need to be declared to accelerate the buy. U.S. Trade Representative um, Robert Lighthizer broke down the agreement into three parts, saying it is agriculture, reduction of industrial tariffs, and digital trade. From our point of view, it is extremely important for our farmers and ranchers and those who work in the digital space noting Japan is our third largest advocate to market. Um, already, the island imports $14 billion in agricultural products, and Lighthizer said the agreement would open up $7 billion more. Within agriculture, the USTR officials said it will be uh, huge for the beef, pork, wheat, dairy products, wine, ethanol, and a variety of other products. The U.S. sells more than $2 billion in beef to Japan, and Lighthizer says a reduction in tariffs will allow us to do uh, do, do so with lower tariff and to compete more effectively with people in Trans-Pacific Partnership countries and Europe. Exact details on the deal would be uh, revealed later per the USTR. Um, uh, it's been explained uh, that this is a significant agreement related to the trade war against China. The underlying real positive here uh, is um, the fact that the president is gaining allies when it comes to the fight against China. This is really important because China has massive ambitions to take over the United States as the largest superpower militarily as well as economically. China has been a bully when it comes to the South China Sea. Uh, and everybody's worried about it. She, uh, it was also noted that uh, this is a win uh, in the agreement for the U.S. and it includes a hold on the auto tariffs currently placed in Japan. Well, one, um, well, in fact, I'm, I'm not going to share what James Roberts had to say, but it was, uh, I, I thought it was rather interesting. But I did uh, note earlier that China signaled on Monday that it's now seeking a, a, a calm end to the ongoing trade war with the U.S. and President Trump voiced optimism about a deal. As Asian markets crumbled, Chinese currency plummeted. This is an 11-year low following the latest tariffs. Uh, the president said on Monday that officials from China called U.S. officials, expressed interest in getting back to the table. The Wall 
Street Journal reported. He called the discussion a very positive development. They want to make a deal. That's a great thing, he said. Well, news of the possible opening in negotiations came shortly after the president threatened to declare a national emergency that would result in American businesses freezing their relationships with China. The president's tariff barrage on Friday was a response to China's imposing its own retaliatory tariffs of $75 billion in U.S. goods. Well, at the Group of Seven Summit in France on Sunday, White House officials rejected suggestions that the president was wavering and insisted that his only regret was not implementing even more tariffs on China. Trump wrote on Twitter that world leaders at the G7 were laughing at all of the inaccurate media coverage of the gathering. In response, Chinese Vice Premier Liu Liu He told a state-controlled newspaper on Monday that China is willing to resolve its trade dispute with the United States through calm negotiations and resolutely opposes the escalation of the conflict. Reuters first reported, citing a transcript of his remarks provided by the Chinese government, Liu is China's top trade negotiator. While speaking at a technology conference in China, Liu added, we believe that the escalation of the trade war is not beneficial for China, the United States, nor to the interests of the people of the world. We welcome enterprise from all over the world, including the United States, to invest and operate in China. He said, we will continue to create a good investment environment, protect intellectual property rights. We'll see when that begins. Promote the development of small intellectual, or rather intelligent in, uh, industries with our market open, uh, resolutely oppose technological blockades and protectionism, and strive to protect the completeness of the supply chain, end quote. Well, Asian shares tumbled early mo- uh, Monday with Japan's benchmark Nikkei 225 uh, started plummeting as soon as the trading began and stood uh, in the morning session uh, down 2.3 percent. I won't go into all of them, but the yuan also slipped uh, to the dollar uh, weeks after the Treasury Department formally designated China a currency manipulator. We'll continue to follow that story as it invariably develops. Well, a federal court has uh, struck a powerful blow for free speech and religious freedom. Um, uh, let's see, the uh, facts of the case are fairly simple. The plaintiffs, Carl and Angel Larson, are videographers who create commercial short films and live event productions. While they work with anyone of any race, sex, sexual orientation, or religion, they will not produce videos that advance viewpoints that violate their Christian beliefs. Well, that includes videos that contradict biblical truth, promote sexual immorality, support the destruction of unborn children, promote racism or racial division, incite violence, degrade women, or promote any conception of marriage other than as a lifetime institution between one man and one woman. Well, the Larsons hope to begin producing wedding videos, but Minnesota interpreted its Human Rights Act to require them to produce both opposite-sex and same-sex wedding videos, or none at all. Minnesota would also require them to produce videos that depicted same- and opposite-sex weddings in an equally positive light. This raised the possibility that a same-sex couple would who didn't like the subjective quality of their work Um, uh, The work that the Larsons produced for them could seek state sanctions based on alleged sexual orientation discrimination. With the assistance of um, uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Larsons filed suit claiming that Minnesota's rules would compel them to speak in support of messages they oppose. The trial court ruled in favor of the state and the Larsons appealed. One of the key constitutional questions of our time is whether the First Amendment will retain its supremacy and potency even as non-discrimination rules and regulations expand in scope and in reach. In this case, the Eighth Circuit answered uh, the with the emphatic yes, and it did so through a majority opinion that provided a clear roadmap for future courts and future controversies. 
Judge David Strauss' majority opinion begins with a simple, obvious, uh, but crucial conclusion. The Larson's wedding videos are a form of speech that is entitled to First Amendment protection. And though they don't make feature films, their wedding videos will still clearly communicate a message in the same way that films do. As the court explained, their wedding videos would be designed to tell healthy stories of sacrificial love and commitment between a man and a woman and celebrate the divinely ordained marriage covenant. Moreover, the fact that the Larsons were producing videos for profit did not diminish their constitutional protection. Documentaries make money. Feature films make money. Are they not clearly protected speech? To put it plainly, Minnesota was attempting to engage in one of the most intrusive state actions on the First Amendment. It was attempting to compel the Larsons to deliver a message they opposed to. They opposed, rather. Yet that finding didn't end the inquiry. State agencies have long argued that the government interests in supporting public accommodation laws and other non-discrimination statutes are so compelling that they can and should override the speech protections of the First Amendment. In constitutional legalese, they claim that non-discrimination laws are so vital they should be able to survive strict scrutiny. More on that when we return in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just before the break, talking about a federal court that struck a powerful blow for free speech and religious freedom, the issue isn't altogether resolved. If the court did find that non-discrimination laws can even compel speech, it would invert the constitutional order, which is precisely what some would like to see happen. It would uh, relegate the First Amendment to second-class status, less potent than a mere state regulation. Uh, this uh, is the argument that much of the, uh, the legal left has uh, been making for years. They view the First Amendment-based arguments against public accommodation laws or other non-discrimination statutes as a form of special pleading by religious Americans to request to be exempt from the fair and just rules that govern the rest of us. But this is exactly backwards. The, fifth, the First Amendment, rather, is part of our nation's governing document, and it's recognizing the inalienable rights possessed by all Americans, not just people of faith. State and local regulators are engaged in special pleading. They're seeking uh, carve-outs from the supreme law of the land. Well, Judge Strass understands this reality quite clearly. And even anti-discrimination laws, as critically important as they are, he writes, must yield to the Constitution. And as compelling as the interest in preventing discriminatory conduct may be, speech is treated differently under the First Amendment. He continues, regulating speech because it is discriminatory or offensive is not a compelling state interest, however hurtful the speech may be. It is a bedrock principle that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable. These, uh, there are those who will claim that this decision will clear the way for wholesale discrimination in the name of free speech. It will do um, no such thing. Instead, it's going to protect a small minority by creating professionals who do not discriminate against any member of any protected class from being conscripted into saying things they do not believe. And that goes for those who hold beliefs and views on both sides of the ideological spectrum. Uh, we can expect that Minnesota will appeal to the Supreme Court. And if the court accepts review, it will be difficult to see the Supreme Court uh, reversing the Court of Appeals. The case that wedding videos represent protected speech is very strong, and once it's deemed to be protected speech, the court would have to contradict key prior precedents to overcome the Larson's right of conscience and compel their speech as a condition of doing business. Now, one should always be cautious when projecting case outcomes, but the Eighth Circuit has laid the judicial foundation for a ruling that should ultimately reaffirm the primacy of the Constitution of 
uh, in American law. But again, that remains to be seen until these decisions are actually made. Well, with a deadline to qualify for next month's third round of Democratic presidential debates closing in, the Democratic National Committee is facing a pretty angry chorus of criticism from the candidates not likely to make that cut. At issue is the DNC's criteria for the contenders to take part in the primary, the primetime showdown, including contributions from 130,000 individual donors and reaching at least 2% in four qualifying polls. While the DNC's process is stifling debate at a time when we need it most. That's a charge from Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. He's a lower-tier White House contender who is all but certain not to qualify for the third round. Montana Governor Steve Bullock, who also needs a miracle to qualify by the end of Wednesday's deadline, argued that these DNC debate rules have turned this primary into the Hunger Games. Each step of this seems to be all about getting donors. While the criticism is not new, the DNC faced similar jabs earlier this year when many of the longer shots for the nomination struggled to make the stage at the first and second round of debates. This time around, the national primary, or rather the National Party Committee, is specifically being attacked over the dearth of qualifying polls. Critics say this is unfairly preventing candidates close to qualifying from actually making the stage. The campaign of billionaire environmental and progressive activist Tom Steyer who's just one poll short of making the stage charge that its uh, candidates is being denied the, the ability to qualify by the lack of recent qualifying polls. There aren't enough of them to make the cut. Steyer's uh, campaign on Friday called the DNC to expand their polling criterion to include more qualifying polling, including at least one poll in Nevada before the deadline next week. As a party, we want to ensure the will of the voters is respected. Tulsi Gabbard of uh, Hawaii is two polls shy of uh, qualifying for the third round of debates. Her campaign urged the DNC to revise their list of debate qualifying polls in light of numerous irregularities in the selection and timing of those polls to ensure transparency and and, uh, fairness. Gabbard's campaign also argued that the DNC has not released their criterion for selecting the 16 polling organizations they deemed certified. The Congresswoman's campaign noted that Gabbard topped 2% support in 26 national and early state polls, but only two of them are on the DNC's certified list. That back and forth will continue with the um, cutoff this Wednesday uh, to determine who will be on stage for the third DNC debate. Former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh announced on Sunday morning that he is running for president as a Republican, challenging President Trump in the GOP primary race while delivering a blistering attack on the president's character and qualifications. Walsh blasted the president for his social media habits and general behavior. At the same time, Walsh recognized that he himself is guilty of the same behavior as the president and even played a part in the division in Washington that led to Trump's election. I helped create Trump, the Tea Party favorite, told ABC News George Stephanopoulos in an interview that aired on Sunday morning. I feel responsible for that. Walsh claimed that Trump was tweeting us into a recession and warned that he'll tweet us into war. Stephanopoulos called out Walsh for making outland statements of his own, including calling former President Barack Obama a Muslim and an enemy. Walsh said Trump made me reflect on some of the things I've said in the past, acknowledging that at times he went too far and uh, beyond the policies and ideas and said some ugly things about President Obama that I regret. When asked if he truly believes what he said about Obama, Walsh responded, use the Lord's name in vain. No. And I have apologized for that. Well, during the same interview, however, Walsh made a serious personal attack against President Trump, saying 
He's nuts. He's erratic. He's cruel. He stokes bigotry. He accused Trump of not caring about America, saying the only thing he cares about is Trump. He also cited Trump 2016 campaign promise to build a wall along the southern border and to have Mexico pay for it, which has not happened. He is incompetent. He has no um, clue what he's doing, Walsh went on to say. Walsh, who served one term in Congress, acknowledged that he has very little chance of defeating the president in the primaries, but said he wants to promote a different direction for the Republican Party. Earlier in August, he published a New York Times op-ed about the need for Trump to face a primary challenge. He said the positive response to the piece inspired his decision to run. Former Massachusetts uh, Governor Bill Weld has previously announced that he is running against the president uh, in the primaries as well. And conservative watchdog Judicial Watch has uh, accused uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a Democrat from Rhode Island, of openly threatening the Supreme Court in a complaint brought before the Rhode Island judiciary. The complaint pertains to a sternly worded brief he and other senators recently filed to the the high court, warning the justices to heal or face the possibility of restructuring. The Judicial Watch filing accuses White House of improperly performing legal work while the status of his license is inactive, as well as engaging in misconduct with a warning they directed at the court. The brief Senator White House filed was unbecoming of the legal profession as Uh, It uh, is nothing more than an attack on the federal judiciary and an open threat to the U.S. Supreme Court. Judicial Watch complaint said the brief, which also bore the names of Senator Maisie Hirano of uh, Hawaii, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, Richard Durbin of uh, Illinois and Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, named White House a council of record. Judicial Watch attached a copy of the Rhode Island Judiciary Record that lists White House's attorney status as inactive. It's been confirmed that the current record still shows the inactive status. As a result, the organization claimed White House engaged in unauthorized practice of law when he filed that brief. Uh, The uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, against the U.S. Supreme Court. The complaint is currently under review. And Wisconsin GOP Representative Sean Duffy on Monday abruptly announced plans to resign from Congress, saying his family recently learned that his soon to be born child has a serious heart condition. Duffy, who is married to Fox News contributor Rachel Rachel Campos Duffy, is the father of eight children with another due in October. Announcing his decision to step down on the 23rd of September, he wrote on Facebook, after eight and a half years, the time has come for me to focus more on the reason we fight these battles family. As you will all know, raising a family is hard work, he said. It's especially true for one as large and busy as mine. Being away from home in Washington four days a week is challenging, and for that reason, I have always been open to signs from God when it comes to balancing my desire to serve both my family and my country. He said his family recently learned that their baby, due in October, will need even more love, time, and attention. The 47-year-old, a former cast member of MTV's The Real World, Boston, was first elected to Congress in 2010, again, reducing the numbers of Republicans in the House dominated by Democrats. 46 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our second hour, we're going to talk with Roger Kemp. If you are a listener and fan of Insight for Living, you'll want to tune in. He wants to let us know what's going on with the program. So that's coming up right at the top of the hour at uh, 5. And we're also going to talk with co-authors Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino, who have done some extraordinary work on the uh, the trial of uh, the, the confirmation trial, and I think that's the right word, for the Kavanaugh confirmation. The book is titled Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the 
Future of the Supreme Court. It's a fascinating book. It not only looks at the details and the what went on behind the scenes of this process, but in the broader context of the challenges of confirm, uh, confirming Supreme Court justices over the last 30 years. It's a fascinating um, look at uh, these recent events as well as the historical significance of others uh, that are similar. Well, in a new survey, uh, uh, it indicates that millennials don't value patriotism, family, or religion as passionately as previous generations, according to a new survey. Now, this has been in decline for some time, but according to the uh, Wall Street Journal reporter Chad Day about the results, the values that Americans uh, say define the national character are changing as younger generations rate patriotism, religion, and having children as less important to them than did young people two decades ago. So they're not um, being compared to older gener- older uh, adults, but they're being compared to young people two decades ago. The survey conducted by Wall Street Journal NBC News began 21 years ago when Americans were asked which values were most important to them, and the majority responded that principles of hard work, patriotism, commitment to religion, and the goal of having children. Now, maybe the wording needs to be different. For example, the word religion doesn't resonate as uh, much today with young people as perhaps a relationship or um, or uh, perhaps spirituality. But according to um, Mr. Day writing on the survey today, hard work remains atop the list, which is encouraging. But the shares of Americans listing the other three values have fallen substantially. Patriotism being very important fell 9 percent. Religion dropped 12 percent and having children fell a whopping 16 percent. Older participants still feel that patriotism is a priority, but younger people aren't as enthusiastic. Among people 55 and older, for example, nearly 80 percent said patriotism was very important, compared with 42 percent of those 18 to 38. You also have to consider what they're being taught, what the 55-year-olds were taught, and what uh, the 18 to 38-year-olds said has uh, been taught more recently. The millennial generation and older members of Gen Z, they noted before adding that the survey did find a few points of unity. The study indicated that a majority majority of Americans are satisfied with the economy, while two-thirds aren't confident the next generation will be better off than the current generation. The survey indicated the Democrats uh, have changed more than Republicans. Uh, in fact, the views of Democrats over age 50 were more in line with those of younger Republicans than with younger members of their own party, they wrote. In addition to differences in personal values, the poll lays out how the country is divided along partisan lines on many other views of society. When asked if the country is becoming more diverse and tolerant of different lifestyles, 63% of Democrats agreed with the notion compared to 16% of Republicans. Roughly half of Republicans feel the country is in good standing when it comes to race relations, while only 21% of Democrats agree. The survey was conducted with a sample of 1,000 adults between the 10th and 14th of this month. A small sampling, but in uh, contrast to surveys taken over a period of uh, decades, it is rather interesting. And then there's uh, another rather interesting poll. Ken Ham writes about uh, a poll in the UK that uh, asked the question about the meaning of life and found that nine in 10 young people in the UK believe Uh, that life has no meaning. This is a recent poll in the United Kingdom, and it revealed that 89%, nearly 9 in 10 of young people aged 16 to 29, believe that their lives have no meaning or purpose. 
Now, this uh, saddening statistic is explained with a corresponding statistic shared in the same article. Only 1% of this age group identifies as belonging to the Church of England, the largest denomination in the UK, meaning that very few young people there hold to any semblance of Christianity. Half of UK residents are atheists. This is being reflected in decreasing church attendance. In England, such attendance is down less um, to less than 5% overall. If there is no meaning or purpose to life, what makes you, well, stuck in a rut or not stuck in a rut? What is your uh, best life? Well, Ken Ham posed those questions and wrote about it recently in response to this survey in the UK that doesn't differ all that much, I suppose, to what we might find elsewhere in Western countries. Well, the study also found that 30% of these young people say they are stuck in a rut. 84% don't believe they're living their best life, as the term has been coined through Oprah programming. But if there is no meaning or purpose in life, what makes you stuck in a rut or stuck uh, or not stuck in a rut? What is your best life? Is this worldview? Um, there is no um, way even to define these things apart from arbitrary feelings and opinions. Well, this belief that life has no meaning or purpose is the outworking of the religion of evolutionary secularism, secularism rather, that permeates the education system and the media throughout the UK and here in the United States. Kinham points out that when you adopt the religion of atheism, you have to deal with the consequences. And one consequence is that ultimately there's absolutely no meaning or purpose to life. Now, many atheists, atheists get all emotional about this and say they have purpose here and now, being happy or making others happy. And yes, they can subjectively decide that uh, what purpose and meaning to believe uh, they have now. But the fact is that they uh, know they will die. Everyone will. They know... Uh, Uh, And he goes on to say, but I believe they really refuse to accept it, even though it is inevitable. And in their present existence, they have to borrow from the Christian worldview to even talk about purpose and meaning. Atheists just don't want to face the fact their worldview means, as Bill Nye said uh, to Ken Ham, when you die, you're done. In other words, an atheist has to admit that when they die, that's the end of them, since everything is purely material in that worldview. So ultimately, nothing matters. More and more, the younger generation who's uh, been indoctrinated in evolutionary naturalism or atheism has realized the hopelessness and purposelessness of the naturalist worldview. Uh, But as God's word teaches in Romans 1, God has made it evident to all that he exists. And so everyone is without excuse. God's word clearly teaches where we came from, what our problem is, and what the solution is. And that uh, the incredible inconsistency is that from an atheistic perspective, eventually everyone dies, the whole universe dies, and no one will know they ever existed. So why do so many of them get so emotional over fighting Christians and creationists? The fact that they get so emotional about it is because it is a spiritual battle, and in their heart, they know they're rebelling against God. Otherwise, they wouldn't care. It shows their hypocrisy and utter insecurity in their ultimately meaningless and purposeless existence in the here and the now that to them is doomed to become nothing. Well, he goes on from there. You can read the article, and it's entirely it answers in Genesis, uh, but it is a sad um Conclusion that's drawn uh, by those who are surveyed asking questions about themselves. Nine in ten young people in the UK believe that life has no meaning. It proposes, uh, presents rather, a significant challenge uh, to the church in addressing questions that may not be asked out loud but have significance to the individual addressing their core questions. Well, a judge has found Johnson & Johnson liable in the opioid lawsuit. The company denied wrongdoing, but the judge found there were liable. An Oklahoma judge found Johnson & Johnson 
um, and Janssen Pharmaceutical Company uh, liable for stoking the opioid crisis in the state and said the company must pay $572 million, far less than the $17 billion that the state was seeking. Uh, judge Thad Balkman of Cleveland County District Court in Norman, Oklahoma, is the first judge to rule in opioid cases brought to trial by thousands of state and local governments against opioid manufacturers and distributors. His precedent-setting ruling was uh, being closely watched as 2,000 other pending lawsuits await to be heard before the federal judge in Ohio in October. Johnson & Johnson said it plans to appeal Balkman's ruling and that the decision was flawed. Uh, Jansen did not cause the opioid crisis in Oklahoma, and neither the facts nor the law support this outcome, said the executive vice uh, president of general counsel of Johnson and Johnson. He went on to say, we recognize the opioid crisis is a tremendously complex public health issue, and we have deep sympathy for everyone affected. We are working with partners to find ways to help those in need, according to a company statement. Oklahoma Attorney General Mike Hunter uh, brought the case to trial for seven weeks, arguing the pharmaceutical company uh, executed an intensive marketing campaign that overwhelmed the market and misled consumers about the addictive risks of the drug. San Francisco is a city in decline. The cartoonish wealth of Silicon Valley surrounds an urban landscape beset by rampant homelessness and the highest property crime rate in the country. Also, there's lots of, well, human waste and rat waste. Local officials are doing everything in their power to confront the city's challenges, for example, by targeting a racist mural of George Washington at high school bearing the founding father's name. They're intent on doing something about all the crime as well, just not the traditional way that most cities confront crime. They're changing the vocabulary. I wish we had time to go into it. We'll do that tomorrow. But that's one way to avoid addressing the issue. Coming up, we've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. Roger Kemp will join us to talk about Insight for Living. They need our help. We'll also talk with Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino, co-authors of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. In this hour, we're going to talk with Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino. They are co-authors of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. It is the most detailed and definitive account of what happened during the process that not only impacted this particular nomination, but they look back as early as uh, Robert Bork and others uh, who were assaulted in this process of confirmation and looking forward to what we might anticipate in the future if we don't uh, rectify some of the difficulties and uh, unwarranted challenges that we've seen in the past. So they're coming up uh, later in today's program. Insight for Living. It's a program that's been here on KPDQ for many years. And I have to say, for me personally, I have always enjoyed hearing uh, my friend Chuck Swindoll. And I can say that because I've been listening for such a long period of time. I feel like we're personal friends. This program has brought me encouragement. I've been challenged. Uh, Conviction has come as a result of listening to God's word so skillfully discussed on this program. And it's just been a blessing here on KPDQ to me personally, and I know to many of you as well. Well, joining us is Roger Kemp. He is executive producer of the Daily Insight for Living radio program. He's often heard 
heard on the uh, broadcast talking with Chuck Swindoll, so you might recognize that voice. And uh, he started working with Insight for Living some 40 years ago when the ministry started way back in July of 1979. Well, as you probably know, we can hear Insight for Living here on KPDQ 8 a.m. and 9 p.m. weekdays. And we might take for granted that the program will always be with us. But that may or may not be the case. Um, Now, as you might know, Chuck Swindoll became a pastor in 1971 in Fullerton, California, and we have benefited from his sound biblical teaching for many years. Uh, But I wonder if the program were um, no longer available to us. What a loss. What a vacancy in our heart and in our lineup. Well, here to talk with us about all of that is Roger Kemp. We are so delighted to have you with us and so appreciate your ministry as part of Insight for Living. Welcome. Georgine, it's great to be with you, the legend, for 20 years or more on KPDQ. Thanks for carving out time for me. Oh, absolutely. And let's talk a little bit about your personal connection to Insight for Living. As I mentioned, you've been there for quite some time. How did that all begin? You know, it was, uh, as you said, in 1971, he became the pastor of Fullerton Free Church. I was in middle school at the time (laughs) when, when Chuck and Cynthia came to California and I recall him uh, that summer that he arrived. Uh, a bunch of us middle schoolers were out in the parking lot throwing the football around, and Pastor Chuck came down, threw the ball uh, back and forth with us, and I thought, okay, this is a guy I can relate to. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple years later, after I graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and came back to California, Insight for Living was just getting started, and I was asked to come on the team, and so I've had a front row seat to this whole thing. Little did we know 40 years ago that history would unfold as it did, and certainly we didn't know that we'd have this long-standing relationship yeah. in Portland and beyond. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I feel like I know Chuck Swindoll because I've listened for such a long period of time. He's so personable and warm in his communication. What is he really like? <laughs> You're lobbing me a softball, and I love this question because, uh, and I think you've probably met him, Georgine. You know, he's, he would not disappoint anybody who sat down to have coffee with him today. He's the real deal. He is who you would hope him to be. And I can tell you, uh, knowing him personally, he's just a great guy. And, and, and not only that, he's hysterically funny. <laughs> so yeah. It's a lot of fun to be around. Yeah, yeah. Um, our radio listeners um, have a lot to say, I'm sure, about Insight for Living. Um, how has it impacted from your vantage point? How has Insight for Living impacted our community? You know, from the beginning, we have uh, received just fabulous, uh, we have such good friends in Portland. We really do. It was one of the earliest markets and, and that, that uh, Insight for Living started in. So we go all the way back to the beginning. And some of those friendships, I know even with my own marriage, we, we were married in 1979 when the program began. We kind of mark our years in Insight for Living years, even remember when our children were born. And a lot of our listeners feel the same way. They've been following along uh, for that amount of time. And the, the kind of comments that we get are, uh, I feel like Chuck knows me. Mm-hmm. I feel like I know him. And I think part of that is that we listen to radio when we're all alone. It's such a great media, uh, medium. Unlike movies where we go together in a group to see a movie or we watch TV with our family when we're all together at home, radio is very personal. It's usually when we're in the car where we've got earbuds on. And so there's a connection there that's very, very intimate. And people really know, feel like they know Chuck and vice versa. And so we get those kind of letters. Now, if Chuck were here today, he would say, man, it, it's not me. Let's make that clear. 
it's the power of the 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 taught word of God, and when it reaches into somebody's heart, the Spirit can do what only the Spirit can, and does its work, uh, does His work in our hearts, and it, it can change people, and that's that's the connection. Yeah, yeah, and it's been such a valuable part of the KPDQ family for uh, for so many years. Is Chuck Swindoll still teaching from the pulpit? Oh man, I'm older than you are, Georgine. I mean, Chuck's older than both of us, but I can tell you right now, he's busier than both of us. He's <laughs> he, he is still out of doing what he loves to do. In fact, you'd have him on the phone today if he weren't out of the country doing a speaking engagement, or he'd be here. He's preaching twice every Sunday morning to a packed house and. Frisco, Texas, and so yeah, he's he's still very much at it. Yeah, he is really a, a national treasure, an international treasure, really. Now we've been hearing about a critical financial need at Insight for Living, and we want to make sure that our listeners are aware of that fact so that we can respond. Thank you, thank you. You know, nonprofit ministries like Insight for Living, and you carry on KPDQ the top of class programs, but ministries like ours, we're not businesses. We operate at the will of those we serve, and we serve our listeners. And so there's an ebb and flow about income that's very unpredictable. And right now we've hit one of those scary patches in the summer. And when Chuck and I were talking about it, we thought there's nothing else to do but go to our loyal friends and tell them. Tell them what's going on. Tell them that some things are threatened. Because we know people don't want us making decisions apart from their being involved. And so... We really believe that everybody bands together and does something. Everybody can do a little something. It doesn't matter the size of the gift. What's important is that if that program has touched you, if it's meant something to you, that you reach out with a gift that's commensurate with that. And I know God will use that to get us through this rough patch. Well, and I I really want to encourage our listeners. We always assume that someone else is going to help underwrite a program that we are ministered to. Uh, by. But that's not always the case. There are seasons when, you know, other people are doing other things and it, it comes to us to say, you know, this has been a blessing to my life. I'm being fed and encouraged and inspired. And so this is our opportunity to step up and say, yes, I want to make sure that not only I am continuing to be enriched by Insight for Living, but others who also need to hear the program have that opportunity. And there are a couple of ways that our listeners can do that. There's the web address. And let me encourage you to take a pencil and write it down. Insight.org slash donate insight.org slash donate you can also phone and say yes i want to support the ongoing ministry of insight for living not just for my own uh, edification but for the edification of others you can call 800-772-8888 now if you're in your car and you don't have anything to write something down i'm going to repeat that throughout the program so uh, you can get it again that's 800-772-8888 or the web address insight.org slash donate. Um, I'm, I'm sure that the need um, is immediate and it's important for us to respond as, as quickly as possible. Oh, absolutely. Now's the time. You know, I can't imagine KPDQ driving into work in the morning and not hearing Insight for Living. I just always assume it's going to be there because I enjoy it so much. It's such great, solid teaching, but that's not necessarily the case. And for those of us who have the means and have been ministered to by the program, this is a great opportunity to express just a little bit of gratitude. And when you go to the web address or when you um, make that phone call, let me encourage you to just say and encourage you how this program has ministered to you. Again, that web address is insight.org slash donate or the phone number 800 772 
888-888. Now, we enjoy hearing Chuck Swindoll here on KPDQ. We enjoy the role that you play in also being on that broadcast, uh, Roger. And I thank you so much for bringing this need to our attention so that we can respond. And I believe KPDQ listeners will do just that. Georgine, thank you so much. We deeply appreciate it. And would you please let Chuck Swindoll know how much we love and appreciate him and his ministry? I certainly will. I sure will. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Really appreciate it. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, Roger Kemp is the executive producer on the daily program Insight for Living. Heard here weekday mornings at 8 a.m. and in the evening at 9 p.m. right here on KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino. They're co-authors of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. One of the most important books written on the subject uh, is particularly in this latest uh, confirmation process. If you want to know what happened beyond the, behind the scenes, behind um, what you may have read or heard about, this is the definitive uh, book to read. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, on June 27th, 2018, a quiet meeting set in motion the most consequential confirmation ordeal in Supreme Court history. That afternoon, Justice Anthony Kennedy, he slipped out of the Supreme Court building. He traveled incognito to the White House to inform the president, President Donald Trump, that he was retiring. Well, the news touched off a media maelstrom. President Trump would now choose a nominee to replace the abortion swing vote on the court. Just Kennedy's retirement triggered a political process that his successor, Brett Kavanaugh, would denounce three months later as a national disgrace and a circus. Well, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court, written by Molly Hemingway, senior editor at The Federalist and Fox News contributor, and Carrie Severino, chief counsel and policy director of the Judicial Crisis Network, is the definitive, the definitive reporting and analysis on the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. It's based on news-breaking interviews of more than 100 people, including the President of the United States, several Supreme Court justices, high-ranking White House and Department of Justice officials, dozens of senators. Um, These are two women with exclusive access, and they tell the true story of what really happened behind the scenes during the Kavanaugh confirmation, and they explore what the bitterly divisive hearing mean for the future of the court and the battle for the soul of America. This is not the first divisive confirmation process, but this latest uh, went to new heights. Well, we're talking about the book Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. Thank you both for joining us very much. Great to be here with you. Well, the truth behind the Kavanaugh confirmation is uh, somewhat puzzling because those of us who only had news accounts to follow were unaware of what was going on behind the scenes. How important is it to fully understand not only what happened in the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, but the future of the confirmation process for the Supreme Court? Is it for the general public to understand? Well, Carrie and I wrote Justice on Trial in part because it's important that the facts get out that the actual facts and not what was happening um, during the ordeal, which was a highly selective grouping of facts, but also that people think about the significance of what happens, that they can better handle future confirmation battles as well. You mentioned how much we, how many people we spoke to. We really did work, do our best to get a detailed look at what was happening in the White House, what was happening in the Senate, uh, what people close to the Kavanaugh family and his chief accuser's family um, thought about everything. And getting those facts down while people's memories were still fresh 
uh, was important just so that people don't rewrite history. Carrie worked for Justice Thomas, and um, and one of the things that she had learned when she clerked for, for him was how important it was not just to go through the confirmation battle and be victorious, but that you have to stop false narratives from setting in. And um, when Clarence Thomas was nominated and went through his ordeal, by a two-to-one margin, Americans believed him over his accuser. You know, at the time, if you watched those hearings, you would remember how uh, sort of shoddy her story was or unsubstantiated it was. But after decades of Hollywood treatment and books um, being written by revisionist historians who sort of, uh, you know, created a new narrative, those numbers might not still hold sway. So it's important that people get the actual facts down and and stick to them. To what degree was the Kavanaugh confirmation process an anomaly and just simply a response, the backlash of Obama's lost opportunity uh, when he was not given the opportunity to nominate a Supreme Court justice based on a philosophy that had been espoused by his own party in, in previous Republican administrations? Well, that certainly played into it. That was p- part of the anger that was fueling uh, the Democrats' real loss of control in this situation, but I think it wasn't the only thing. When we uh, look through the history of Supreme Court confirmation battles, we have seen an increasing intensity in the battles, and that has, has often been in response to the success of presidents who are pushing back on liberal control of the courts, um, and they were they, that have been using the courts very effectively for decades to achieve liberal policy goals that weren't getting done by Congress, but instead were being done through the unelected branch of the of the, uh, of the courts. And when presidents started pushing back on that, you started to see increased uh, tension in in these uh, in these battles. President Trump has, of course, been exceptionally successful in that, and so we're seeing that um, being taken to a new level. As well, we saw that every time there is a potential for shift in the courts, if you're replacing a swing vote, if you have the potential to move the balance of the court, that's when things get crazy. That's the the kind of seat that was going up when when, uh, President Reagan nominated Judge Bork. Um, when, when Clarence Thomas was nominated, mm-hmm. it was a shift in the in power. So anytime that happens, like it did this time with a, a major swing vote up up for grabs, that's when you see things get crazy. Well, and it seems it seems to be that when there's a potential shift in power to the right, not so much if the potential shift to the power is uh, to the left. <laughs> That, unfortunately, is is definitely part of the trend as well. Typically, Democrats, I mean, and Justice Ginsburg referenced this during the process. She said, well, I got I got confirmed virtually unanimously, 96 to three to three, even though I was very had had worked with the ACLU. She had been very out there in her liberal um, bona fides. And I think it, it has taken a lot longer for Republicans to recognize the fact that the Democrats are playing for keeps here. They are not voting for Republican nominees um, because they have ideological differences with them. But the, a lot of times it's, it's taken almost a generation more for the Republicans to recognize that actually it is important to make sure that the people that you're putting on the court have a firm judicial um, philosophy and not just to vote for anyone who comes along, because that's certainly not what the Democrats do. Yeah. Now, news of Kennedy's retirement touched off a, a, a minor media maelstrom that was followed by protests. It did, did it really matter who the president ultimately was to uh, nominate? He had, uh, during uh, his campaigning, had submitted a list, had presented a list of potential nominees to the court. Um, he added a few uh, after his first um, nomination to the court. But it, it, would it have mattered who he nominated um, after Kennedy made his retirement announcement, given the ideological bent that that individual was likely to have? Well, some senators indicated that it didn't matter at all because they announced they were going to vote no on whomever 
the president nominated. So it really didn't matter who the individual was. And that's also, it's even true, you know, on the Republican side, most people indicated that they would support whoever his nominee was. But that was because he'd already put out, President Trump had already put out a list Mm -hmm. that was widely regarded as just an excellent list where any one of the nominees would be good, according to people on the right. So it was less surprising that the right was more reflexively supportive of Kavanaugh. But on, for the Democrats, some said they would vote against him uh, before he was even named, before before they knew who they were going to be voting against, and a, and a protest was held within minutes of his name being announced. And what that meant was there was a coordinated group of about 30 um, liberal activist groups that had reserved a, a protest site at the Supreme Court. They had signs made up for each of the four uh, shortlisted contenders who might be named at the announcement, and then they just tossed the signs for the three who didn't make it, and they pulled out the Kavanaugh signs so they were ready to go. So this was not something that people came to a decision of whether to support him or not because of a long, you know, or to oppose him because of a long reason look at his record. It was pretty much right away. And that was true even of the Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats, where I think only two hadn't announced before the hearings how they were going to vote. In uh, in your book, uh, Justice on Trial, you point out that although the initial effort to defeat Kavanaugh was vigorous, <laughs> it flailed about in search of a message. And on the 11th of July, the Washington Post broke the news that he incurred credit card debt when purchasing group tickets for Washington Nationals baseball games. That was kind of the first dirt that they had on him, hoping that that might ultimately derail his campaign. Can you talk a little bit about the process of trying to undermine his reputation and derail this uh, this nomination? Yeah, I mean, that was a phase that in retrospect seems sort of quaint. Yes. Uh, there was even a hashtag on Twitter, hashtag Kavanaugh scandal, and people would put uh, funny things up there like, you know, failed to turn off his brights when in oncoming traffic or, you know, turns in his library books late um, because that, that was the level of ludicrous kind of things like the baseball ticket things or even there was a group that was trying to crowdsource photos of him at these national nationals games. They were convinced that he there was something nefarious. He was going, I don't know, they thought, they thought he was showing up with Putin or something to these games. And does anyone have any photos? Um, they also attacked his record. They were, they were trying to misconstrue, um, in particular, some articles he wrote about executive power to suggest that he thought that presidents basically had unlimited power. That's not at all what he had said, um, of course, but that, that played into their rhetoric and, and, and the messages that they thought would, um, would resonate well with their base. Um, and so there were a lot of, there was a lot of that. And then the Democrats also instigated a big fight over documents. He was someone who had worked in the White House in a role that t- basically oversaw almost every single piece of paper that went through the White House. And so they thought they could create delay and create issues with the nomination by requiring every single piece of paper that went through the Bush White House to be released. That, of course, not only is just um, would potentially implicate a lot of stuff that has national security issues and, and you know, confidential information, but required an incredible amount of work because the Bush uh, library, as well as the Trump administration, would have to look at every one of these millions of pages of documents to try to determine which ones had to be redacted, which ones could be released, and that, that played into delay. So that was another huge aspect of it, and they had to kind of figure out how in a world of email where we create so much more paper than before, can we look at these things um, and and not 
not get bogged down by having this huge fishing expedition in all of these documents. And ultimately, it turned out that the Democrats were so over-focused on getting too many documents that they um, overstepped. And that made many of the, the moderate Republican senators, the votes that could have been gettable for them, who said, you know what, they're being ridiculous. They're, these are not reasonable requests they're making. Let's just move forward. We have enough documents. So that was one of the many cases we found where Democrats actually overstepped because some of the voices in the left were so strident and so extreme that they, they um, in fact, made it easier for the Republicans to move forward and for the moderates to be feel comfortable voting for him. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking uh, with Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino. They are the co-authors of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with the co-authors of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. It is a must-read, not only because of what happened with uh, Justice Kavanaugh, but in anticipating uh, future vacancies on the Supreme Court, what is likely to happen in the future. Uh, the, the the challenge of the, cro- uh, the confirmation process didn't begin with the Kavanaugh uh, nomination, but it has continued for the last 30 years. There have been challenges, this being the pinnacle, but one can only imagine what the future might hold. Uh, let's talk about the, the, the confirmation and the search for, which is a process that was searching for um, a scandal. And that, I think, is uh, where most of the American people found that they were... Um, let me see. I'm trying to make sure we have both of you on. Uh, that's where most of the American people became more intimately involved, when there were accusations against the character of uh, Judge uh, Kavanaugh uh, that were brought forward and, and pursued. Well, it's important to remember that things actually were crazy even before that. The whole process uh, you know, was, was pretty ridiculous from the get-go. First off, there were many people in the media trying to invent scandals, where they were coming up with uh, they were coming up with anything they could to say that Kavanaugh was unfit for office, including that he was uh, such a rabid Major League Baseball fan that he had purchased season tickets for him and his friends on his credit card. They thought there was something really questionable Ooh. about that, and it led people to make jokes about Kavanaugh scandals because it was viewed so widely by people outside of the media that these weren't real scandals. But during that first set of hearings, and even before that first set of hearings. You had coordinated activist groups flying out people from different states, teaching them how to get arrested, paying their bail money, giving them advice, you know, putting them all in the same dramatic outfits from The Handmaid's Tale and whatnot. And uh, this really did disrupt the first set of hearings. So by the time that the allegations broke, which was just before he was about to be moved out of that Senate Judiciary Committee, yes, I mean, that really did make things crazier, but they'd actually been crazy for a long time. It had been very exhausting for everybody who was trying to get the nomination through. And they had been following this pattern of just trying to delay the eventual confirmation so much that when the allegations first came out, a lot of people on the Kavanaugh team just assumed this was yet another delay tactic. They didn't realize how serious it would become. When Christine Blasey Ford testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, she seemed like a a credible accuser. uh, And the presumption by much of the media was that because of her uh, level of education, her background, the kind of work that she did, that she was to be believed, uh, in addition to the fact that she was female and that in and of itself uh, merited uh, absolute uh, belief. The challenge was 
uh, holding uh, her to a standard that would apply to any other set of accusations against anyone else. Can you talk a little bit about the challenge of addressing this uh, seemingly uh, credible woman who people question, why would she come forward unless uh, there was some credibility to her accusations. Uh, yeah, and part of that was the way the story was presented. They made it seem that, well, of course, she has no other potential uh, motive here. It, it, it was carefully, it was a carefully calculated presentation uh, down to the, oh, she's not even political, when uh, actually we learned from people who were familiar with her social media profiles before they were they were professionally sw- uh, scrubbed um, and when in anticipation of this uh, allegation coming out, that in fact she was very political. Um, and so there, there is a, our potential motives here. We also talk about the uh, potential for memories to uh, be tainted, to be manipulated by others. We don't know what actually uh, went on there. I think one thing that was so valuable to the process, though, um, was the uh, information that came out during this hearing. Rachel Mitchell, who was the, the prosecutor um, from Arizona, um, who is a national expert on questioning victims of sex crimes and who at, in her professional work regularly is tasked with it, questioning people to determine whether there is evidence to go forward with a case. She was the one who was asking those questions at the hearing, at this reopened hearing. And while at the time many people felt like, you know, she's not going for the jugular, this is not the dramatic moment that maybe um, – uh, people in the Kavanaugh camp had hoped for. She was doing exactly what the Senate hired her to do, which was to try to get to the bottom of what the actual facts were there. And so we learned that it's not just about uh, having a, a superficially plausible uh, story, but when she started digging and, and listening, to asking for details, uh, trying to uncover some of the inconsistencies, whether it was the uh, ways that the story changed over time about the number of uh, people involved and whether they were boys or girls involved or, you know, where and when the events took place, how she got there, how she got home. There were a lot of holes in the story uh, that Rachel Mitchell uh, uncovered, as well as um, things that cast her credibility or or her lawyer's credibility into doubt, like the uh, kind of famous um, fear of flying incident, where the hearing was initially delayed because her lawyer said she was too afraid of flying and and implied that she'd have to be driving from California to get to Washington. It turned out she did fly, and with her exchange to Rachel Mitchell, it turns out she flies regularly for fun, for surf travel. So this is not just something that she has to do under pressure, but actually does regularly. So there were there were moments like that that ultimately she presented then to the uh, Senate Republicans that night after the hearing saying, not only is this not enough evidence to bring a, a criminal case and get a conviction, this wouldn't even be enough evidence in court to get a search warrant. It, is an, it was an incredibly weak case when you looked at the actual facts. And I think that was very a very powerful uh, message to the GOP senators and ultimately a very influential one in the final vote. Of course, you go into a great deal of detail about that injustice on trial. What was the what was her motivation? Was this something she decided to do as an individual? Was she encouraged to do so as part of a coordinated campaign? How do you explain her uh, sudden appearance on the scene and then other accusations that were less credible that came forward following uh, following hers? Well, Carrie and I just chose to report the facts as as they are established. Mm-hmm. And so we know that she came out with an allegation. We know that she claimed she wanted to keep things secret or keep her name out of it. We also know that one of the very first phone calls she made was to the Washington Post tip line, which is not typically what you do when you're trying to keep an allegation confidential. Um, We know that when the allegation was sent to 
the, her her um, elected representatives or senator that rather than put it through the established long-held process for how to handle confidential how to confidentially handle such allegations senator diane feinstein or her staff um, put her in contact with an attorney known for doing high-profile PR campaigns against powerful people, a Democratic attorney who, again, didn't do a forensic interview or do any of the type of things you would normally do with a victim of a crime, but instead just sort of rolled out um, rolled out an operation that was guaranteed to create the most high-profile drama. We don't know why exactly these Democrats worked together to do it in such a fashion. We know that they had a strategy of delaying the nomination, obstructing the nomination, fighting the Kavanaugh nomination, and that they went against the expressed uh, desire of the person who made the allegation. We also saw how um, by delaying it, that enabled other allegations to come forward as well, except that ended up pretty much backfiring completely on the anti-Kavanaugh forces. Uh, Not only did no other allegations come out that were even remotely as um, plausible as the initial one, they were so implausible that they made people think that the entire mm-hmm. operation against him was a setup, including, you know, an allegation of a serial gang rape cartel that Brett Kavanaugh supposedly ran through the streets of suburban Maryland on a nationwide crime spree, including states that he'd never visited. You know, it got so ludicrous as part of this sort of coordinated um, campaign of destruction that it ended up backfiring on the people who wanted to fight him. To what degree did um, Judge Kavanaugh's impassioned personal defense resuscitate his nomination when it seemed at at one point that it perhaps was beyond saving. Yeah, that was a definitely a key turning point in the uh, in that hearing in particular. That morning, we described kind of the mood among mm-hmm. Kavanaugh supporters. In that morning, was oh my goodness, you know, there's a lot of people. I mean, there were there were there were people watching it who who felt very skeptical of her, including as we report Melania Trump saying I, this woman's lying. But there were also a lot of people going, wow, this is a really emotional, impassioned testimony. This this um, is, this uh, nomination is really on the ropes. And we described the moment where he's you know, in the room getting ready to go out there talking to the White House counsel, Don McGahn. And and McGahn tells him, you are you you know, he had a lot of Bush ties. He had worked for President Bush for many years. His wife did as well. But he said, you're a Trump nominee, though, and Trump fight. And he had spent days. Um, reading over this very emotional testimony, getting ready, and uh, they had they kind of had this pep talk, and they're saying, we, "This is this is your opportunity." He referenced a a movie about Miracle on Ice, where the Americans had a great comeback in the 1980 Winter Olympics to beat Russia in in, the, in ice hockey, and I think that was sort of his his inspiring moment of I have to go out there, and he wasn't really just at that point defending his can I get on the Supreme Court. It was really about do I have a career to go back to? Can I even continue to coach girls basketball? What what life is there for my family after this? Because his whole reputation and mm-hmm. his family's reputation was on the line, and I think a lot of people saw that the real person. In there and and saw his passion that that he got a little too passionate at least one point when he when he was a little too uh, short two percent at Klobuchar but they said that that's what I would I would respond like if I were accused of such horrific crimes 
Um, and I think that that read to a lot of people as this is genuine and, and we have to remember there's a real person on both sides of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our time is almost up, but I want to ask, uh, you know, when, when Justice Kennedy announced his retirement, that's when everything began. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is struggling with the, uh, with her health and there's speculation that she may be the next to step down, may be forced to step down. You point out that a good person might accept that nomination in the naive belief that what happened to Kavanaugh won't happen to him, but it can happen. It does happen. And it just happened. Uh, in understanding Standing uh, through justice on trial, what happened to Justice, uh, now Justice Kavanaugh, how might that help us avoid, prevent this same kind of um, show trial from happening in the future? Well, just the knowledge that this is the type of operation that can be run is helpful. People who remembered their history and remembered what was done to Judge Bork or, or Justice mm-hmm. Thomas during their confirmation hearings were better prepared for this moment. They were more skeptical of last-minute, you know, sort of perfect allegations to derail a nomination. But it's also true that people need to be held accountable for what they did, lest this happen again. Good people will be nominated. Good people will be willing to serve. But that's a huge cost to the family and to one's reputation. And that's part of the ploy, I think, of doing these kinds of character assassination campaigns. So people who made false claims against uh, Brett Kavanaugh should should be prosecuted for those false claims. There were some criminal referrals for some of the false allegations, but there have been no actual prosecutions. The senators who violated the norms and procedures of the Senate in order to orchestrate this should be held accountable, you know, circumventing the process or violating committee confidential rules, as Cory Spartacus Booker did. They should be held accountable. And then, of course, the media, which who behaved in such a one-sided, mm-hmm. ridiculous, partisan fashion, should not be getting awards or getting promotions, but should be uh, dismissed and be held accountable for their bad reporting. Absolutely. Once again, the book Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court goes into much more detail than our conversation reflects, but it is a must read to better understand how the process uh, works and what we might be better aware of moving forward. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of today's program. Ravi Zacharias has um, spent the better part of his life answering questions about Christianity, sometimes on college campuses. He's an apologist. He's 73 years old, and he's known around the world for answering skeptics. He gave his life to Jesus when he was 17 years old on the verge of suicide, and for 47 years since that time, he's been an itinerant speaker. He's traveled the world defending the faith. Uh, speaking um, about his book, The Logic of God, a book within with uh, 52 devotions for the heart and mind, he said, I've come to the conclusion that it's harder to find logic in life if there is no God. He's the founder of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which is uh, speakers engaging in apologetics at college campuses, forums across the world. He says there's always a a questioner behind every question, and that questions have changed dramatically since he started. Now, in light of what we were discussing earlier in the program, I thought it was rather uh, interesting. He says we've progressed immensely in our capacity to communicate, in our capacity to digitize everything. But oftentimes what's happening is we're living in front of a screen and missing out in relationships. And so the questions are getting larger and larger and the soul is getting emptier and emptier. 
Uh, when uh, he began speaking years ago, apologetics, he says, was heavily focused on debates like creation versus evolution and questioning of authority of the Bible and so on. Basically, they were questions to challenge the very notion of God's existence. But now the questions are more existential. Young teens bombarded with social media, they're asking if their life is even worth living. Zacharias, who himself asked that critical question when he was a teenager, said all questions hang on that thread. All the questions you ask can only be answered after you have found the answer to the first question, why you actually exist. And when you find that the relationship with God through Jesus Christ, as I believe, then all the other questions are justified and uh, the answers are forthcoming. Well, in addition to meaning, uh, he hears questions about sexuality in some form at every form that he presents. Sexuality is the toughest one to deal with, Zacharias uh, conceded. But let's remember it this way. It's a gift, but it's a gift that has parameters. It is possible to break it. Um, it is possible to find fulfillment in it. Well, the Christian scholar points to when people say things to him, such as, if two people really love each other, that's all that really counts. Well, then I ask, why did you leave it to, to two? Why did you qualify it by love? He added that you're already setting boundaries, that sexuality is not without boundaries. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, I take his boundaries as the guidelines to enjoy the gift with responsibility. Otherwise, you can break it. But even within the walls of the church, he noted, there are many who don't have the right answers, leading to a decline in some denominations. Some of the mainliners have lost numbers, and uh, they should have lost numbers because they lost the message. If you've lost the real gospel, people are going to say, why am I coming here? Uh, is this an ethical society or a feel-good moment in, or, on Sunday morning? But the even uh, evangelicals have grown in numbers. He adds that some of the church that are biggest and most packed are those where the gospel message of Jesus Christ is being given to the young and to those who are even thinking seriously about what life is about. But these fundamental questions can lead to the answers that we uh, talked about earlier in the program that many young people are raising. Uh, Fewer than 89 percent in the UK, for example, said that life has no meaning. And uh, here at home, young people are losing uh, their interest in some of the fundamentals that uh, were uh, so common to previous generations. Well, the gospel is the answer, and preaching it faithfully is the right response to the uh, the puzzles that uh, so many young people are now facing, um, looking for answers. And I hope we're faithful to that gospel in communicating uh, truth, whether or not we imagine it won't resonate in uh, in young ears. Anyway, Ravi Zacharias' advice, I think, is good for us as the tough questions of the day, the tough questions about faith are changing, but are as uh, and but the gospel is as relevant now as it has ever been. Well, coming up on the program tomorrow, we're going to talk with Morgan Tyree. The book is titled "Take Back Your Time: Identify Your Priorities." decrease stress and increase productivity. Now, is it possible to do all of that by taking back your time? We'll talk with uh, Morgan Tyree about that tomorrow. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Todd Chipman until every child is home, why the church can and must care for orphans. Of course, all of us before God were orphans at one time, and he has taken us uh, into his bosom as family. And so we're going to talk with uh, Todd Chipman about um, every child finding a home in the church, t- playing a role in uh, securing that relationship. On Thursday, we'll talk with Jolene Philo, sharing love abundantly in special needs families, the five love languages of parents raising children with disabilities. And what a opportunity the church has to reach out to and minister 
to families with children with disabilities and to embrace them as part of the uh, the body of Christ. Uh, Johnny and Friends plays a role in this um, uh, organization that uh, uh, we're going to talk with on Thursday, the Five Love Languages for Parents Raising Children with Disabilities. Uh, the, the publisher is Northfield Publishing. And then on Friday, we're going to... Um, I believe we're going to lighten up and take a look at the lighter side of the news. We're going to coordinate all of that. So that's kind of the week uh, lineup. Um, also, also, if you uh, had the opportunity to hear my conversation with Roger Kemp from Insight for Living, you know that they have a, a financial need, and I want to encourage you to respond. Chuck Swindoll has been a fixture here on KPDQ and so many stations around the country with Insight for Living. Forty years, that ministry, starting in uh, 1979, has been ministering to people in our community. They currently have a, a financial need, and I would like to encourage you, if you've been ministered to, encouraged by, uh, challenged by Insight for Living to consider making a gift and doing that today. Uh, you can do it a couple of ways. You can go to their website, insight.org slash donate. That's insight.org slash donate. You can also call 800-772-8888. That's 800-772-8888. Uh, once again, we just want to say thank you uh, to Chuck Swindoll and Insight for Living that has been a longstanding program here, blessing so many of us. And I know so often we think, oh, I want to support the work that they're doing. Well, today is the day to do that. And I would encourage you once again to do it one of two ways. You can go to the website insight.org slash donate or phone 800-772-8888. And when you do, please give a word of encouragement. Let them know how you've been blessed by uh, this ministry. Uh, I think that will be a great encouragement to them. All right. Well, um, once again, want to thank James Blind for producing Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice show part of your day. Once again, our guest on, um, t- well, Tuesday, tomorrow, Morgan Tyree, take back your time. I hope you'll join us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.